0: would turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 127. A lot of the Psalms this morning are called to worship, our confession, now in our sermon text. This is a very familiar Psalm. As we start to read it, I think the, the imagery will start to spark some uh, remembrance of how you may have heard the, the text before. It's quite a popular um, verse. Many There's even movements that have come from it. The, the quiver full movement of having lots of children kind of thing uh, stems from this text this morning. But uh, for our purposes this morning, I want to use this uh, text in Psalm 127 as kind of a, a diagnostic test to our hearts. going to hold it against how we feel, what we're experiencing, and see if it doesn't ring true about something in our own hearts. And first, this text will give us a tragic picture of one who attempts to build something outside the watchful eye of God and show that its end is vanity. But after painting a sad picture of vanity, it shifts to what I believe the solution to this despairing vanity, and that is children. If you read the text, it kind of shifts in an odd way, but I believe that it's actually got a logical flow to it. So what we're going to do this morning is to explore the the social vanity uh, uh, that this text exposes and ask how children might serve as a solution to this problem and what you as covenant households, as families, can do to help better, better build out a biblical but also practical theology of children. Okay, so our t- our psalm this morning is Psalm 127. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word of God for his people. Let us pray. Father, we come to a a pretty familiar text today, and I ask that our hearts would um, not already have preconceived notions that tell us this is what this is already about. I pray that you would help us to be softened in our hearts. I pray that we might be able to be honest with ourselves about some of the things that this text might even expose in us, some of the things that we have unwillingly or maybe even unknowingly participated in. And Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, the, the answer found chiefly in your son Jesus, but also, Lord, I pray that you would see how this text um, elevates something um, of a theology of children for us that gives us um, an idea of how we should think about our kids. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I said a moment ago that this psalm diagnoses a problem of social vanity. What do I mean by that? Well, the first two verses here in Psalm 127 paints a picture of an anxious and an insomnious society working its fingers to the bone, exerting all of their energies into a project that is ultimately in vain. It's all for naught. You get the image of a laborer building for destruction, rising up early, going to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now let me ask you something, church. Does this sound familiar at all to you? A sleepless culture of work and anxiousness, where it never seems like you can do enough. You build only for someone else to break. You plant only for someone else to eat. You save only for someone else to spend. You lay down to rest, but only to find that you can't sleep because you're too anxious about the cares of the world and what tomorrow might bring. If this psalm were a painting, in my opinion, it would be a picture of Wall Street in New York City. And it wouldn't be in the genre of uh, impressionism. I think it'd be in realism. It'd be a clear, crisp picture of maybe Wall Street and New York City. And The point is, is that the United States is anxious to the core. Okay? We are anxious to the core. And I don't say that just to point the finger out there. It's not just New York City. It's also even Southern Illinois. It's all around us. We live in a culture. We eat, sleep, and breathe anxiousness okay we participate in this we are not immune to it even the christian household even the christian church in many ways have been sucked into this chronic anxiety the pervasive unease has crippled us to the point of fearing the future of our world when we think about the future we have a little bit of anxiety about us many of the people even the church do okay If you are to ask the average person, maybe even in church, uh, about a a heritage or an inheritance that they're leaving behind, a legacy, they would say, what heritage? What legacy? What inheritance are you talking about? Most people do do not see much of a future for themselves or anyone else. The future is bleak for many people. And, And let me tell you how we generally cope with this anxiousness. We say that we work around it. OK, but more honestly, if we're being vulnerable with ourselves, allowing this text to kind of speak to us in our own hearts, we hold on to this anxiety because anxiety is the socially accepted crutch of fear. Everyone's anxious. I mean, what's the big deal? We are all anxious. So who's to to say that person or who's to look down their nose at that person uh, because they're a little bit anxious? Because we're all anxious. No big deal if that's holding them up. That's kind of the way that our culture thinks. We tend to coddle our various anxieties. And what happens is this, that we try to build and to watch over our lives in such a way that works around this big elephant in the room called anxiety. But this experiment only ends in vanity, this text tells us, in restlessness, eating the bread of anxious toillessness. That's our food, anxiousness, more anxiousness. What we will actually end up doing if we start to live this way is accommodating our beliefs, accommodating our theology to meet our nervousness, to meet our anxiety. So if we do this, we'll assume a pessimistic outlook on the whole, and we'll end up even conforming God's grace, kind of redefining what God's grace to us in the form of an escape from bad future. We're scared about the future, and we say, well, this is how God's grace fixes that, and end up creating a religion, creating a system of beliefs that saves us not from the sins of ourselves— but from the problems that others have caused us. Do you see how this can be very dangerous? If we allow anxiety to take grip and root in our heart, what we start to do is build our, our beliefs to where we say they are the problem. It's all them. If God will just save me from them. Not recognizing that God calls us to lay down our anxieties. Do not be anxious, he says. You, you don't get to use that as an excuse. All that you have, bring to the Lord, he says, in prayer. Okay? In short, we conform God's plan of salvation to our fears. We build out what we believe based on what we're scared of. You can see how dangerous that might be. But think about the implications of that. Building out what you believe, creating what you believe based on your fears. This is what we often do. This is what our culture has already done. Past tense. This is what we live in. Now, I don't want to digress too long on this, but I really do believe that this is all connected somehow back to the subject of children. You notice it kind of talks about this, this city, building the city, building the house, this anxiousness, all for vain. And then it starts talking about children. I think it's connected. Okay? I really do. The problem with our secular society, the state, we would say, is that they have built tire, tirelessly, but without the Lord. So it's in vain. Okay, That's the problem with our secular society. The problem with our sacred society, the church, we call it, is that we have the Lord, okay? We, we recognize that we have the Lord, but we've forgotten to build at all, okay? We're not building anything on the whole. And perhaps even more scary, m- many Christians would say that the building itself is in vain, right? They're scared to even build. build store up your treasures in heaven, is what they'll say. And there's truth to that. That's that's scripture. But it ignores many other verses which call us to be contributing to the world that we live in. To live in the world, but not of the world. So we can't just throw our hands up in the air. It's a lost cause because it's all going to be burned up anyway. That's kind of the mentality that many Christians even have. We're all going to be taken out of here, so why does it matter? That's the kind of things that people are saying these days. It's an escapist kind of theology. It's an escapist belief. You see... The secular society, the state, believes that we have a good future here on earth without God. But that's in vain. They they, they say, let's build out a secular society. It'll work without God. And we say, no, that won't work. But the sacred society of the church thinks that believing that we have a future here on earth is vanity. Right? We, We don't even think that we have anything here on earth to look forward to. And my judgment is that both of these skewed views are vanity and fueled by anxiousness that neither of them really have a future that works. It should go without saying that if you want a house, you have to build it. Okay? You have to build. If you want to preserve the city, you have to watch over it. Okay? The problem is, is that we just want to sit back and let God do all the working and, and ignore all the mandates that he's given to us, like work and keep our gardens. That's From the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis, we are called to work and keep. That's even pre-fall that he tells us to do that. Ignoring that we are called to be co-laborers with Christ is what Paul calls us, to build something. Ignoring that our work even will be judged in the end, and it says. And if it's shoddy work built with straw or hay, it says, that will be burned up. But if we build with stones, precious stones like silver or gold, that's the work that stands. In other words, we have work to do. We should be building something, and that work will be judged by God in the end. How we do it. Church, we must wake up and realize that we are called to plant and to build something. Now, the obvious answer from this text on how we are to do this is with the Lord's help. Okay? The church takes this for granted. Yes, of course we do this. But we also need to recognize that we do need to be building at all. Okay? The Lord is what makes the, the spinning wheels get traction. We realize that. But what does this look like practically? Okay, what does this actually look like? Well, first let's break down what exactly it is that we're talking about in this text when it says house and city. Look with me at verse 1. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, what's that? Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, what's that? Okay. Well, we need to give some definition to what it's talking about with the house and the city. And at first glance, you might be tempted to, to say that the house is a reference in, in Psalm 127 here that it's obviously talking about the home. Because right? we're in the household series. We're talking about this. It's obviously talking about the family. It's t- talking about what we've been talking about for so long now. right? But if you pay attention to who is writing the psalm, it opens up the realm of possibilities of meaning. Okay? It might It might surprise you what it's actually talking about here. You see, this is one of only two psalms in all of the Psalter that are attributed to Solomon. Did you catch that? That's why I read that at the beginning. A song of ascents of Solomon. And who was it that was given the task of building the temple, the house of God? It was Solomon. Okay, So there's a bit of ambiguity as to what he may actually be referring to when he makes reference to the house in verse 1. Since this is a song of ascent, you know, the the hymns, the songs that the people of God would sing on their way to the temple to worship— He's probably King Solomon, King the king over the city is probably talking about the temple building project that he was tasked with. It's probably talking about Israel in which he lived in and reigned in. But then again, he goes on to mention the raising of children, which is obviously a function of the home. It's obviously a function of the household, not the church, not the state. If you read the proverbs, you realize uh, the, 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 the proverb writer, does not think that it is the church or the state that thinks that they should be the ones raising the children. It's parents. Okay, So which is it? Is it the church or is it the home? Well, this ambiguity actually serves well the overall intention of the text. I like it because it further substantiates that if one is going to build anything, if you're going to build a church, if you're going to build a home, if you're going to build a state, you must do it in faith. And if you don't, it's in vain. Okay, it really gets this deep into our bones when we recognize this. This is the point of verse 1 and 2. For if, it, if for if the Lord watches over the city, if the Lord builds the house, that is true. And it rings true that it's going to be well with either of those realms, whether ecclesiastical or domestic, whether church or home. It's both and, not either or. Okay, That's what I want you to see here. <coughs> In this psalm, it has far-reaching implications that span across the household, the church, and the state. It reaches all of those realms. And the beautiful thing about this is that the vision for all of these spheres, the, the household, the church, and the state, which are supposed to work interconnectically, uh, keeping one another accountable, these things all come together and have the same vision that identically kind of moves to the same point as they move forward in history. Yes, they are all to build, Yes, they are all to be watched over by the Lord, but their future is all the same. Behold the children. Behold children. Children received as a blessing, a gift, a heritage from the Lord, are the solution to social vanity that is self-consumed by chronic anxiety. How so, you might ask. Well, first of all, children help us to look forward into the future with hope. Douglas Wilson says, Children are like wet cement. Whatever falls on them makes an impression. What the point is, is that they are very impressionable now, but once dried, that concrete is hard to break. You all have probably seen concrete before with handprints in them, right, where little kids stick their hands in them, and 50 years later, that concrete, if it was poured right, and if it was in good conditions, still has that hand there. It doesn't change, okay? The concrete, once it is set, doesn't change, but when it's still wet... That's very impressionable, right? You can make a big impression on them. Here. Okay, so so here's how I want to expose some of the anxiousness that you might even not realize that you have. <clears throat> if you found that quote that I just said, that children are like wet cement, if you found that fundamentally pessimistic and thought, well, that doesn't leave much hope for the kids, well, who said that the impressions were bad? Who, who said that those were bad things impressing the children? What if that child was raised up in the way that they should go and they will not depart from it when they're old as Proverbs 22, 6 says, where well, that's a positive thing, but that's a, a good thing. What if that child is shot like an arrow from the hand of his parents, and when he's old, it becomes the decisive blow to their enemies in their older age? Think about that. What if children really were the heritage that God says that they are uh, to those who invest their lives in them so that their future is all the more concrete, all the more set in stone, all the more permanent, all the more the way that it should be? Children help turn our attention away from our present vain pursuits, getting caught up in the rat race of our jobs, getting caught up in all this stuff, trying to make a big impact on the world, going out there, leaving the home, all the worldly means of building out our future. Children help turn our gaze away from that and realize that there's something really profound here in our own homes, in our own cradles, at our own tables. God places these ever-present reminders in our youth to keep us grounded, realizing the future is not ours. It's our children's. They are the future. All the more reason to invest in them as they become our greatest weapon against anxiety and shame, worrying about if our future will look like what we want it to. Raise your kids the way that you should, and it will. That's the promise of this psalm. Investing in your children is storing up treasures for heaven, in uh, uh, for storing up treasures in heaven and on earth. Have you heard that before? You can't take anything to heaven with you, is what people say, except for your children. That's something you can invest in here and now that has far-reaching implications. They are the ones that you get to take with you if they're raised in the Lord rightly. That's a huge blessing if you think about it. That, that concrete blessing of children being wet cement, that's a great hope for us if they are raised rightly. Now second, children are God's heritage to us, okay So they're hopeful, but they're also a great promise of a heritage to us. Not only do children give us hope for a good future, but this is actually God's covenantal plan of successive blessing. you know, reaching all the way back from Abraham, from generation to generation to a thousand generations, God promises blessing to those who love him and keep his promise. From generation to generation, God blesses his people who approach him in faith to build the house and to watch over the city. This is God's plan. This is how he keeps it going. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth, it says in verse 4. And I I want you to slow down and think about that verse in verse 4. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. That's some really profound poetic imagery that the psalmist gives us. Consider the danger of a warrior with a stockpile of ammunition. There's where the, the quiver fool is where you get that. That quiver fool movement. Think about that. Someone who has all the ammo that they need. Now, some of you in here have literal stockpiles of ammunition to secure your future. Okay? Not dogging that at all. You might need that one day, but contrast that security, uh, contrast that security with the, the security of Faithful children being the ones who are in charge of your future rather than your enemies you so dread in your stockpiling that you're ready to defend against. Right? Think about that, where your children are the ones that are the government. Your children are the ones that are in the church, that are leading the church. Your children are the ones that are taking care of your family in the future. Where your children are your future, where you're not so scared of your future that you feel like you have to stockpile everything to defend yourself against the future. Think about that. What if we spent as much time and energy on our children as we do fighting the anxiety evoked by the news? What if our children were received from God as the gift of spiritual ammunition that prevented us from the shame against the powers and principalities that wreak havoc in our social lives? Think about that. Children being what we need in our future. The defense of... That we will not be put to shame when we meet our enemies in the gate. And the gate is a a, a social context. That's a place where people would come together with ideas, kind of like the marketplace. You won't be ashamed if you raise your children right and you, you raise them right in your youth. Think of this imagery of an old man kind of raising his son right with his son standing there next to him in the social context. They're not ashamed. They're ready to go. They're prepared. Children are the heritage that are given to us. And how we receive them from the Lord makes all the difference in our future. The implications are huge now in how we raise our kids. Why else do you suppose the government so desires to educate your kids? Think about that. They realize more than we do even sometimes that the children are the future. That's why they want them so badly. Because they know that if they can get the children, they've got the future. We've believed this for a long time. Sorry, I should say, we haven't believed this for a long time. That's why we've sent our kids off for the government to educate our children rather than taking that into the household, realizing that we as parents are the ones that are called to raise our children, not the government. This this is something that we need to take seriously. We'll we'll talk about this more when we get into the parenting side of the household. But for now, we need to realize that if, if we don't raise our children in the Lord, it impacts more than just our home for a short time when our kids are young. It impacts our entire future. It impacts our church. It, it impacts our, our whole society as a whole. Okay? The thing that the, the world doesn't realize that renders their whole program in vain is that without the Lord doing all this work, it's in vain. Right, Ecclesiastes 1, the same person who wrote this psalm, also wrote Ecclesiastes. And it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, there's going to be a future. And if you aren't doing this in the Lord, it's all vain. We're going to keep on going. You, you all are going to die. Newsflash. You're, you're all going to die. But in your old age, you're going to have an experience where the, the, your, your young implications, the things when you were, had children of your youth, they're going to make a difference in your life. And your children are going to be that future that you pass on to the next generation, generation to generation. It says the earth remains forever. You see, what I believe this King Solomon, this really wise man, right? Remember, Solomon, he knows something. He's wise. King Solomon is telling us in his wisdom as he marches with the people of God on their way to the temple in worship, is that if you want a flourishing spiritual community, i.e. a church, if you want a flourishing city, i.e. a state, then it starts at home with the children. Children are God's gracious reward to us. We haven't earned them. No children that we have is earned because of our hard works. It is a, a gracious gift, a heritage from the Lord, is what this text tells us. So go the children, so goes the world. We have to realize this, church. We have to realize this families. We have to realize these citizens. So I ask you, church, how are we going to live in light of that fact that everything that we have will one day be theirs? Think about that. All your stuff, you're not going to get to take it with you. It's one day going to be theirs. Will we hoard our life? Will we hoard and stockpile our time, spend it all on us, all of our resources pointing back at us? Or will we invest it in a place that's going to have far-reaching implications beyond our lives? Okay. Are we going to invest in the children? Because they're going to get it anyway. Right. They're going to get our stuff, so we might as well start now. Right? This is what a biblical theology of children stirs us to ask. Right? It helps us to think about these things with an eternal perspective. This psalm calls us to, to reframe our thinking about the future that we all want to have and reminds us that children, whether yours or part of your communities, are part of the future. They are the future, and we must uh, th- th- therefore they must be, the children must be, that is, received as a blessed gift a heritage, a gracious reward. And if we do not want to be put to shame when we meet our enemies in the gates, then we have to start pouring into the children now. And I'm, I'm not just saying this for people that have children of their own. Okay, There's a reality that other people can educate your children too. Okay, Teaching is a, a very important thing. So it doesn't matter if you have kids or not. The kids that are around you, that are part of your community, pour into them. They're they're, they're the wet cement that we talked about. You can make an impression on them, even if it's not your kids. Think about those things that some of those kids tell stories about when they're 80 years old when their teacher in third grade said something to them that left a lasting impact. That's what you can be to your community. Maybe it's in your church. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's just out out there in the state, and the greater realm of society. But the fact of the matter is children matter, and we have to wake up to this. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our children. Whether we have birthed them or whether they are just there as a a blessed presence around us, I pray that you would remind us that we need to pour into them, that we must invest in them. Let us not push them to the side, Lord. I pray that you would give us a heart like Jesus that welcomes the children. Let us never push them aside thinking that they are unimportant, Lord. They are the most important things that we have around us right now. So, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be turned towards our children. I pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need, give us the patience that we need with our children to realize that they matter. And, Lord, I pray that you would glorify your son through that. Lord, I pray that you would teach us something about the fatherly love and care that you have towards us. That even in our sin, when we're acting out not deserving anything, Lord, you pour into us. You love us even unto death. Help us to live self-sacrificially like that in light of our children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.